Hello and welcome to the Sunday Arrival podcast. Today we're going to talk about how to change the world. When you see an injustice on a global scale, when you see a need, when you see a cause that needs fighting for, how do you make that change? How do you get other people mobilised behind that change? We're going to talk about that today on the Sunday Arrival podcast. So hello, we're trying a slightly different format today. We, I, am trying to start uh, with a different format today, and that is in televisual uh, glory. So we here we go. We're gonna got, we've got the new mic. We've got the uh, the phone. I'm gonna try and be a little less heavy with the editing, uh, and hopefully um, you're still gonna enjoy this. Uh, and once we've got this kind of set, I think next season. We're going to start a new series and perhaps have some interviews and begin to meet some leaders and some people who made their someday dream a reality. So I hope that you'll stick around for that. But today, uh, at the moment, COP26 is happening. You can't really miss it. It is a gathering of world leaders, of lobbyists, of uh, climate activists, of companies, of uh, charities, all sorts of people, the good and the great, coming together to try and keep the uh, the dream of, of 1.5 degrees alive, keep 1.5 alive in terms of um, temperature above industrial levels, I believe is the right term. Uh, and uh, you've got countries there who are going to be incredibly affected if sea levels rise. You've got company, uh, you've got companies there who will be affected uh, if governments begin to put sanctions uh, on on certain uh, fossil fuels. And so it is really uh, an interesting time. But how do we get to this point? How do we get to the point where the world is working together, seemingly, to try and achieve something incredible and important? Um, and it is a really important time, isn't it? Right now, I believe the world, this planet, and people on this planet are facing a trio of threats. They're, they are facing uh, some devastating um, threats that could undo decades of progress. I'm talking about uh, with three C's to keep it simple. Conflict, climate, currency, maybe another C in there, COVID. So you've got uh, you have got conflict in this world. You've got fragile states, fragile nations. You've got extremism still rearing its head, uh, it causing displacement of people internally in nations and across borders. Effectively, we're still seeing the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War. Uh, so conflict is playing a huge part in threatening uh, the progress for the poor, progress uh, for those who are trying to make it in the world. Climate, obviously rising sea levels, global warming. Uh, we are seeing wildfires uh, on a scale we've never seen before. We are seeing countries hitting all-time highs in terms of temperature. And there's talk of, and I've seen various visuals of this, certain countries becoming almost uninhabitable. Some countries which will effectively be underwater soon, island nations especially, and poorer nations. And we know that climate change always disproportionately affects the poorest people in the world. They're the people who, who have least uh, impact on, on the climate. They're, having, they're contributing the least to those changes, those um, concerning changes. Uh, actually, it's the richer countries and the bigger industrialized countries um, and the global north companies that, uh, companies, uh, countries that are making the biggest impact. Uh, but it's the poorer, low-income and middle-income 
uh, nations that uh, are, are really bearing the brunt of it. And then the, the third C is currency. Taxation injustice, uh, a situation where uh, riches and money stay with people uh, who know how to uh, avoid, occasionally evade, but usually avoid paying those taxes, where companies are almost more now more powerful and have a bigger um, uh, profit margin than the gross domestic product of some small nations. And you've got multinational companies really with such clout and such power uh, that they are managing to resist taxation. And there's a lot of debate at the moment about how much billionaires uh, um, are paying. You've got a lot of billionaire spacemen at the moment using their money to go to space and uh, and have this incredible experience. But um, it, what does that mean for the world when all of the money is going not just to the 1% but the 0.01%? Um, I've got nothing against capitalism. I've got nothing against people making money and, and being successful. I do have something against um, sy systematic uh, um, situations where the poor are kept poor by those who are rich and those who are in power. Um, uh, and when, when so much injustice is caused by um, corrupt or just unfair power and people in power, then that needs to be looked at. Um, and even situations like the debasing of the currency, um, inflation, which is caused often by printing more money to keep the, the capitalist machine going, you've got a situation there where, uh, let's say, the banks arguably, in the global financial crisis, um, we're reckless of money, and then the effect is you have to print more money in order to keep the economy going, the banks get bailed out, and it's the poor who find they are paying more for their food, paying more for their, their housing, etc. So anyway, conflict, climate, currency, all play their part in causing poverty and misery uh, for those who are most disaffected, most marginalised, uh, those who are um, poorest and living on the least amount every day um, and then you add COVID into the mix and effectively where we'd made 20 years of progress you know for the first time um, we've had 20 years of progress with with more people being pulled out of poverty and then COVID hits and you, you are we're in danger of losing two decades worth of pro progress uh, and you, you can't ignore the fact that Half the world's been vaccinated, but it's not the richest half. The poorest half of the world still hasn't been vaccinated, which is, I was talking to someone today, sort of um, counterproductive, really, isn't it? You know, we're here, I'm here in the UK, uh, and we're on to our third dose of, of a vaccine now, but it's being offered to children. Uh, it's been re-offered to adults who are not, don't have um, comorbidities, they don't have underlying health issues. So you've got, you know, we're on our third, maybe fourth uh, vaccine um, offering in this country. And yet you've got people, even doctors, even nurses in some sub-Saharan African nations who haven't even had their first vaccine yet, let alone their second or third. They've not even had a full dose. They've not had, sometimes don't have had the first of two jabs to complete one vaccination. So an incredibly unjust rolling out. And you've got the World Health Organization saying, please stop um, stop vaccinating people when they don't need it. Stop vaccinating children before we've vaccinated all the adults, for example. Um, yeah, I, I'm really passionate about this. Um, ultimately, th this virus isn't going to go away and it's going to keep mutating until globally we can get a handle on it and globally we can vaccinate against it. Um, and and it, even if it's endemic, even if it's with us forever, at least if everyone's vaccinated, 
it um, will slow the rate. I'm not an expert in these things, but it will slow the rate of of mutation and of variants. And we've seen that when the when the virus is allowed to run rampant, what it does is it um, is it, it it does mutate and it does it become more. Um, I can't remember what the term is now, but it more transmissible. I believe it 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 becomes more virulent potentially, um, maybe even affecting children one day in a, in a worse way and it becomes easier to pass from person to person. So, you know, we can't be in a situation where we only vaccinate the rich people and the rich nations. So again, conflict, climate, currency, COVID, all endanger people. They're, they can be devastating and they can cause poverty and misery. So in the face of those four C's, let's give you another four C's. Um, which for me, as far as I can see, are the way you change the world. Um, uh, and I've thought just reflecting on COP26 and some of the key players and key faces and names, uh, both kind of famous leaders, people like Barack Obama, and um, but also uh, people like uh, Greta uh, Thunberg. Um, you know, what what is it about these people? And what is it about this movement? How specifically about climate change how has that become um and accepted for the most part um a cause that pretty much everyone more or less i would say the majority of people you talk to agree that one the planet is warming um uh, that the ice caps are melting that the that the, that the um but the pollution needs to needs to be capped and needs to be controlled most people today realize that we need to do more to save um, species from going extinct, not least ourselves. Um, but how does that happen? Because that didn't happen overnight. And obviously, continuing to this day, there's fake news around it and there's, there's controversy and there is um, resistance to that, uh, depending on kind of where you get your money and your power from. So here are four C's that I think you can see uh, at play. And I'll tell you in just in general terms about these four C's. Uh, and then we can look perhaps at some examples throughout history. And then maybe you can comment at where you find this and you can tell me whether or not you agree. The first C is, maybe controversially, civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. You have to disrupt life, disrupt life for those who are unaffected by the problem until you get noticed by the media maybe locally, then nationally, then internationally, and until you begin to get noticed by those in power. And that probably means in government, but it can mean power in terms of celebrity power. It can be power in terms of um, corporate power. You upset the status quo, and I, and I believe, with my faith, you do it non-violently. Now, there are examples of people doing it violently, uh, and that, again can lose you some support and some sympathy but it also can gain you some support in some camps if people feel that's your last resort but in general civil disobedience of some kind and i would say usually non-violent in order to garner more support which we'll talk about in a moment uh, is is where you start now now again i'll come to examples but whether it's rosa parks disobeying segregation laws and keeping her seat on the bus you know, you've seen it all throughout history with people saying thus far and no further, these rules, these laws, these, this prejudice, this discrimination, uh, it's got to stop. And, and with COP, for example, you know, you, you saw uh, Greta 
think it's Hans Thunberg. Um, I believe the very first time was she sat outside Parliament. She she skipped school, and she was just there on her own, saying this isn't good enough. And it was an, an inspirational, symbolic moment. So civil disobedience is the first C. The second one is campaigning, and I would say campaigning creatively, finding creative ways to make your point, to voice your argument, to make your um, your concerns heard and understood often through symbolic or artistic peaceful protests so i think about you know the beatles and the anti-war movement and uh, you think about artists at any time in history where there's been a huge controversy or or concern artists have come to the fore haven't they they've there have been songs there have been pieces of art there have been uh, perhaps um kind of contemporary art there's always been things you can point at and look at people who've creatively expressed their anger or frustration or sadness um, or fears um, using the creative arts but so campaigning in of itself is great but if you can do it in a way that gets attention because uh, lots of people are campaigning about lots of things all the time more now more than ever but if you can do it in a way that people think is clever and creative and stands out and makes a point and humanizes it somehow puts flesh in it somehow makes it more visual um, uh, you know th I'm thinking about for example just recently we saw statues being pulled down then whether or not you think statues of for example people involved in the transatlantic s slave trade should be pulled down that's sort of irrelevant the fact is it's an incredibly symbolic thing to do to pull down a, a long-standing statue uh, in the middle of a city center that that I don't know if you quite call it creative, but it's certainly stark and striking. That's just that image. Um, thirdly, so civil disobedience, disrupt life for people, make them get their attention um, and find a way to be um, to get noticed. Secondly, once you've got noticed, start campaigning or keep campaigning and be creative, be artistic, be symbolic. Um, find, find visual aids, find a way to visualize, to almost create a picture of of the problem not just conceptual thirdly consensus building and this is why i think violent protests and violent civil disobedience isn't necessarily helpful because by the time you get to consensus building you need to get a tipping point you need to get people behind you um, usually that comes from the academic community so with climate change for example one of the things that it took was for the for academic papers and research and peer-reviewed um, studies to build to a critical mass where people could no longer ignore it, no longer um, explain it away or call it a, you know, a minority view or a sensationist or whatever it is. You know, they they didn't they they were able to build a body of evidence to say this is happening, and it was the research community that added their voice to campaigners, to those who are marching, those who are. Uh, protesting uh, and and it's the academic community who often political powers and leaders will will need to look to so they will see or hear a movement and a campaign perhaps they've it's got their attention or annoyed them that there's civil disobedience happening and they're beginning to understand some of the campaign and what they're trying to fight and argue for and ask for but then it's the academic community and it's other forms of consensus building where you begin to get a groundswell of the wider population there will always be a minority there will always be niche communities who care about particular topics that's nothing new but what you do need is especially for political powers to make to 
tend to sit up and notice is you need um, other people coming in uh, and and saying yes these guys aren't crazy <laughs> they know what they're talking about and here is some evidence to show what they're saying is true and concerning and it's only when you have civil disobedience added to by creative campaigning added to by the consensus building that begins to win over the populace which really if you're in elect certainly if you're in an elective de democratic nation you care about you care about what the pop, pop what the majority think because the majority decide whether or not you're staying in place once you've got those three in, in place then it begins to be enshrined in law protected in law laws can be changed and it's also interestingly as i said earlier adopted by multinational companies excuse me it's adopted by multinational companies but still even then with civil disobedience with campaigning with consensus building and even with governments going yeah okay well you want us to do this and you're voting for us so we're going to do it even then you don't see a change overnight most of the time you have to keep reinforcing and rehearsing it rehearsing the arguments rehearsing the need until it becomes culturally accepted a cultural norm and i've defined it as this until it becomes a mutually shared majority moral value bit of a mouthful a mutually shared majority moral value um, so it's all well and good that lots of people agree with you. Yeah, those guys are doing something really great over there. I'm, I'm, I'm for them. I'm not going to get up from my, my TV or my YouTube, but I'm generally I'm, yeah, good for you. Thank you for doing that. But then when it becomes cultural, oh gosh, I need to think about how often I meet, I meet and meet because, because that's going to affect the planet. I need to think about whether I get an electric car because if I can afford a car because that's going to affect the planet or maybe I'm going to cycle more I'm going to start thinking about where I put my money because my pound or my 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 dollar is my vote in terms of companies and the way they're, they're conducting themselves and, uh, and it becomes cultural it becomes a moral issue not just an interesting academic mental ascent um, situation and not just an interesting marginal campaign that you think oh that's got my attention it becomes something that is shared that is not just um enshrined in law that is not just um a something that companies are getting behind but something that as a global population or as a national population at the very least people realize this is morally ethically something we need to do so there you go civil disobedience campaigning consensus building and even then sometimes years sometimes decades it has to become a cultural norm in order to stick um, and where have i seen that happen well here's just a few examples i'm sure you know more these are the really obvious ones for me but you could put maybe put in the comments some ones that you can think of wilberforce i love wilberforce not just wilberforce but a number of freed slaves at that time as well um a number of people all around the world they did to what was their civil disobedience so i'll keep this really simple there was a sugar boycott. So in the UK, at least, people stopped eating sugar. Why? Because sugar came from the plantations that were being worked by the slaves. And if you stopped buying sugar, it hurt the slave owners in the pocket. It also made it financially less viable for them to, to keep trading slaves. So there was civil dis disobedience. That was only just one thing, the sugar boycott. There was a political campaign and numerous petitions. If you've seen that amazing film, Amazing Grace, you'll know there were petitions. You'll know there were campaigns. They made arguments, and, they, and then um, in terms of consensus building, they pressured MPs, and they had to build a consensus in the UK. There was there was a little bit of confusion there because it began to look like an anti-royalist, anti-monarchist 
um, almost like a civil war <laughs> uprising at one point, and, and it worried some of the landowners who were also often slave owners. It, it, so there was a bit of confusion there, but after a while they made the point that actually, no, this is, this is and he gets the culture, this is an ethical issue, this is a moral issue. It, this isn't, oh, some people are for slaves, some people are not for slaves. The general populace and globally, um, the richer nations started to realize this is wrong. This is just plain wrong to treat a human being like property. And the law change, again, if you've seen the film or if you've read books about Wilberforce and others at the time, didn't change things. They just found other ways around it. And often the laws didn't quite go far enough. It was only when it became cultural, it was only when it became um, something which took time to, to, un to unpick all of the... Uh, the machinery and the apparatus of, of slave trading that it became a, a cultural moral norm and today most of us would think that slavery is abhorrent whether it be modern slavery whether it be um, the, the, um, the this transatlantic um, a more ancient slave trade pretty much all of us agree it's a moral issue the aircon has finally gone off um, th this is wrong so you had your campaigning, sorry, you had your civil disobedience, you had your campaign, you had consensus building with petitions, and then you had the cultural, finally this cultural acceptance. Martin Luther King Jr., you can't really talk about campaigns without talking about him and Rosa Parks and others like them. Civil disobedience on buses or on marches, uh, campaigning, sermons, speeches, we've all heard I Have a Dream, books, pamphlets, there was a long, uh, long and hard-fought battle um and that for the hearts and minds not just of the decision makers and people in power but for the consensus and the view of the american people there was still a lot of steeped um racism from uh, from the history of america from from the from the makeup of of the civil war and everything that, that they had to undo all of that north south divide all of that thinking around um uh, black people being inferior or uh you know all of that stuff they had they had to build a civil disobedience then campaign then they had to build a consensus that it wasn't a threat that freed um sorry that um the right to vote the right to not be segregated wasn't going to be a threat to the american uh, way of life and then slowly the culture of racism has taken longer to change now we've seen protests with black lives matters we've seen um very upsetting worrying scenes i'm sure you've seen videos i'm sure you've read articles the culture of racism is taking longer to change, despite the fact that all the laws, pretty much in most states, have changed. So, you know, you could you could fairly say that the campaign for black, white, brown people to all be treated uh, equally with equal rights and equal standing and equal civil rights and um, freedoms has succeeded. And yet that cultural thing is still happening and in certain institutions, in certain uh, communities, in certain parts of America and UK and globally, uh, it's taking longer to change. But the battle's sort of been won. It was just waiting for everything else to fall into place, you could argue. Gandhi, a couple more examples. Gandhi, so he defied the salt tax. We've had sugar. Yeah, there was a salt tax. And he marched 240 miles uh, uh, leading to the arrest of 60,000 people. He mobilized 200 million people um, uh, with civil disobedience. Now, when 200 million people in the British Empire uh, start saying, we're not going to do what you tell us to do anymore, that gets 
that gets noticed and you you know i love this quote first they ignore you like you know we're, we're more powerful we're cleverer we're we're the imperial leaders we're, we just ignore it oh okay now hang on too many people are doing it now this is not working so first they ignore you next they laugh at you um then they fight you they they get aggressive they get um they they attack back and then you win first they ignore you then they laugh at you then they fight you then you win mahatma gandhi love that quote anyway so he defied the salt tax he campaigned on radio and on television. He became effectively a personality. Um, he um, uh, got a change in the consensus in the corridors of power and, and the populace enabled a new constitution declaring independence uh, for his nation. And now, the cultural bit, colonialism, the idea of an empire going in and saying, you know, the famous, we've got a flag, Eddie Izzard, we've got a flag, this is ours now. That whole we've got a flag and we've got guns um, uh, and we're here to civilise you is now culturally unacceptable. It's a moral issue. So the culture has changed uh, around colonialism. And then finally, Greta Thunberg, civil disobedience, a school strike for climate in 2019 in 125 countries. Children, young people saying, hang on a minute, this is this, we're the ones who are going to be inheriting this earth after you. It's our kids, our grandkids, and, and you guys aren't moving fast enough. So we're going to skip school and we're going to get noticed. And you're going to notice that we're not happy. Civil disobedience, disrupting a campaign on TV and social media, whatever you think about Greta. She is a very powerful communicator. She's on TV, she's on so many social media, and along with others. Uh, there were protests, so there was consensus building in the political power state. You, we, we saw... Um, ahead of elections, for example, that people were mobilised, people were speaking at summits where world leaders were present. There was that one moment, wasn't there, where Trump, I think, left the room because Greta was getting up or something. Uh, there's consensus building within political powers, and as I've said before, it's academic studies that made that, that galvanised that, that lent support to not just a young girl, but you know, when you get universities and great, um, you know, towers of learning saying no hang on she's got a point here um that starts to that starts to galvanize people and then now it's a cultural norm as i said before i think most people support that we need to address climate climate crisis that it's affecting not just the poor which is bad enough by the way and would be a reason but it's going to affect us all one day so if you want to change the world uh, and maybe you know the equivalent of cop 26 in a few years time and you can be at the heart of that four four stages four phases civil disobedience campaigning creatively consensus building and then finally cultural adoption it becomes a moral issue that everyone not need can get behind but must get behind i hope you enjoyed that hope you enjoyed this slightly different format um you may or may not have enjoyed seeing my face uh, for those who are seeing it on youtube and other places um and as i say season two coming soon <laughs>